The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, uh, the past couple of years, Wisconsin has been kind of the center of the political world. At least it's been pretty popular throughout the political world. When you think about it, uh, we had um, politicians who left the state and went and stayed in hotels. We had politicians that made major radical reforms. We had recall elections. We've had a politician as a vice presidential candidate. And so politics has been in the news. Wisconsin politics has been in the news, not only locally, but across the nation. This past week, I did some research, kind of looking in a little bit to how much money is spent on these campaigns to elect these men and women to office. Back in 1988, 1998, excuse me, the Wisconsin governor's race campaign spent $8.6 million. What could you do with $8.6 million? You could do a lot of stuff, couldn't you? So remember that number, $8.6 million. Four years later, in 2002, the governor race, the campaigns raised $24.8 million, almost three times as much as four years earlier. 2010, they raised $37.4 million. Again, that is, um, that is significantly more than the $8.6 million 10 years earlier. And then in 2012, in the recall election, they spent $63 million in campaign money. Again, that's up 12 years from $8.6 million to $63 million dollars. That is a lot of money. 63 million dollars to get your man or woman elected. But you know what? That's nothing compared to the presidential election. So they spent this record 63 million dollars for the recall election. And in late October, the presidential campaigns spent 70 million a week. <laughs> The presidential election in 2012 cost $3 billion. Federal elections as a whole cost $6 billion. There's one website that put it in perspective and said, you could, you could pay for the entire population of Texas to go skydiving for the cost of that. And I guess there's probably a debate as to what a better use of the money is. But you could pay for the whole state of Texas to go skydiving. $6 billion. And the question I want to ask is, why do we put so much money to getting our person elected? Why do we care so much? You know, maybe, maybe you've never donated to a political campaign. Maybe you have bumper stickers trying to get your person elected. Maybe you've had spirited conversations. Hopefully you care. These are important things. But why do we care so much about who is elected? And the reason is because we want a righteous ruler. We want a king that will rule us well. I think we all know three things that makes us so passionate about these elections, about who's in office. We know, one, that the world is not right, that it's broken, that something is wrong. Two, that we ourselves, in ourselves, cannot fix it. We need someone who has more power, more influence, more character than us to fix it. And number three, we need someone else to come in and do it. We cannot do it on our own. So we desire 
a king. We long for a king. We long for a righteous ruler. Today, we celebrate the coming of that king that all of our hearts long for. If you would please open up to John chapter 12. We're going to be reading verses 9 through 19. If you are in the Red Bible, it's page 899. If you're in the Kids' Bible, it's page 1321, I believe. We've been working through the Gospel of John, so now we're skipping a few chapters forward to look at Palm Sunday, the first Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of the Passion Week. Chris gave you those little inserts in the bulletin, and I would really encourage you. I know many of you say, you know, I'd really like to read the Bible more, uh, but I get distracted and I don't make it a priority. I'd encourage you this week, just, just this week at least, get into the Word. Walk through the final week of Jesus' life. Understand it. Appreciate Maybe take some time even to fast as you consider the sacrifice of Christ for you. And so walk through that. But today we celebrate Palm Sunday. Thursday, Monday, Thursday is the Last Supper. Friday, Good Friday, is the day of the crucifixion. And then, of course, Easter Sunday is the day of Christ's resurrection. But today we're going to start with Palm Sunday. And we're going to look at Palm Sunday. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem as the long-awaited king. We're going to start in verse 9 of chapter 12. In the first eight verses, Jesus comes to Bethany. Bethany is just outside of Jerusalem. He's preparing to enter into Jerusalem, but he's out there and he's dining with Lazarus. There's this celebration. Lazarus is the guy that Jesus raised from the dead. And so that's some of the context you need for us reading this passage. So let's start John chapter 12, verse 9 through 19. Read along with me in your Bibles. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, which would be Sunday, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. And had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word today, we come with this great desire to encounter the king. Not just to encounter a king that is far off, that is distant, that is in Washington or Madison, but a king that is here today, that is with us, that dwells among us, that knows every aspect of our life. 
We praise you that that encounter is real through your Holy Spirit. Pray your kingship would spread its dominion in our life. Pray that your kingship would conquer more of our hearts this morning and this week. In Christ's name, amen. Palm Sunday is one of the few accounts that's recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which means it is critically important. Obviously, all of it's important, but this is so critically important that all four of the Gospels said we must have this in our story about Jesus and our recordings about Jesus. And the question is, why is Palm Sunday so important? Why was it so important to them back then? Why is it so important to you today? I mean, is it just a day that we grab these leaves and wave them around? Or does it really have any significance, any bearing on our life today? Well, the simple answer is that, yes, it is important. Because Palm Sunday is a celebration that the king has come. The king that the Jews were longing for, and even the king you are longing for. And so I just want to ask this one question today. What kind of king is Jesus? If Jesus is campaigning, why would you want to make him your king? Why would you submit yourself to him? And if he is your king, what good is that to you? And so we're going to look through three attributes of Jesus as king. First, we're going to see that Jesus is the anticipated king, okay? We see that through prophecy. If you look here in verse 14, it says, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. And then it goes on to quote Zechariah 9.9, but just as it was written. You see, this occasion of Jesus coming in on a donkey was recorded 500 years prior to the birth of Jesus. Let's read about that. Zechariah 9.9, you can read it up here on the screen with me. Jeremy, can you put that up, please? Zechariah 9.9. Thank you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteousness, righteous, and having salvation is he. Humble. And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, John spends very little time talking about this donkey, even though he includes this detail. But the other Gospels actually go, and it spends a lot of ink describing how they attained this donkey. That that as they were headed in Jerusalem, Jesus sent his disciples and he said, Go into this town and you'll find a donkey tied up there. Go, untie it, bring it to me. If the owner asks you, what are you doing taking this donkey? Just tell them the Lord needs it and he'll be okay with it. And sure enough, it unfolds just as he had said. They go in town, they untie this donkey, they start to take it. The owner says, what are you doing taking my donkey? And they say, the Lord needs it. And they say, okay, go, you know, go ahead and take it. You know, um, I don't know if that works for Corvettes, but you can try it and uh, let me know how it goes with your one call from jail. But the guy says, go ahead, take your donkey. Take, this, take my donkey, use it for the Lord. And the question is, why is this such a big part of the Palm Sunday story? Why is it such a big part of Jesus' story? It seems like a random event that he came in on a donkey. Well, the reason why it's so important 
is because there are many people, both in Jesus' day and today and throughout history, who have claimed to be the Messiah, who have claimed to be God. And the question is, why is Jesus God and all these other people aren't? What distinguishes him? Well, there were signs that accompanied Jesus. There were signs that authenticated that this one, Jesus of Nazareth, is the true king, is the true Messiah that you have been waiting for. And so it's recorded in Zechariah 9.9 as a sign that when Jesus would come in on a donkey, people would know that this is the true king, the true Messiah. Signs are things that are important for us for authenticating when things are valid. For example, a dollar bill. You see this dollar bill. There are ways that you can authenticate whether this is real or whether it is counterfeit. Okay, Here are some ways that you will know. And by the way, we do this every Sunday when we count out your tithe money. We just make sure that it's all legitimate. But the first thing you see is that there's a security thread. You can see it here. I don't, this is a $10 bill. It's actually in different places on the bills. So you can't wash the money and make a $5 bill become a $100 bill. There's micro printing on that thread. There's micro printing around uh, some of the pictures on there that is very hard to duplicate. There is actually, I didn't know this. There is glowing ink inside these bills where if you, under, uh, if you put it underneath a black light, uh, if you put a $5 bill under, it will glow blue. A $10 bill will glow orange. A $20 bill will glow green. A $50 bill will glow yellow. And a $100 bill will glow pink. I didn't, I didn't know that. That's cool. There's a, there's a watermark that you can see from both sides. There is color shifting ink. So if you move it in the light, you'll see different colors. And finally, and I didn't know this one either, that there is there's a texture to it that is not typical and counterfeit, where if you run your finger over their vest, I know you all want to do this right now, just wait till after service, but if you run your finger over their vest, you can fee- feel the texture of it. And so all of these are signs to let people know that this money is authentic, that it's real, that it's not counterfeit. See, the purpose of this donkey was to let people know that Jesus is the authentic king, that he is not counterfeit. Now, you may say, and this is a reasonable question, well, you know, Jesus read Zechariah 9.9. He knew that he had to come in on a donkey if he wanted to proclaim that he was the king, if he wanted to proclaim that he was a Messiah. So he went out to go get a donkey that, that he could project that he was this king. And that's, that's a valid question. But the problem is, is there is a mountain of evidence besides this one sign. There is a, a plethora of signs. There are over 300 signs in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Signs that, to be quite honest, he could not control. For example, there was a prophecy that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. It's really hard to control that if you're the baby, isn't it? There was a sign that Jesus was of Nazareth. Again, very hard to control. Impossible to control. There was a sign that, that he would come up out of Egypt, which he, which he did. There were even signs fulfilled by Jesus' enemies, that there would be a massacre of children amongst his birth, which there was. There was a, a, a sign that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and the potter's field would be purchased with that money. All of these are prophecies that were made hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. And every one of them is set forth that when the Messiah, the king comes, there will be no doubt that he is the authentic one. He is not one of the counterfeits. He is the genuine one. Have you investigated Christianity? Have you searched out the evidence? The claims are so great 
the evidence is so overwhelming that point to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. So he is the anticipated king with prophecy, but he's also anticipated with palms. You see, the palms are a symbol of their heart anticipation of the king. Verse 13, we read again. So they took out branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. In a sermon by R.C. Sproul, uh, I got to understand the significance and importance of these palm branches. Palm branches would have been plentiful. Uh, for us, it would be probably like pine trees or something like that. And so they would go and they would grab a palm. And it was a, a, a national symbol of victory that they would wave to honor a king when he had come back from war, when he had defeated the city's enemies and he was coming back, they would wave these branches. In fact, in 142 BC, there was a man named Simon Maccabeus who drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem and he drove them out of the promised land. And as he came back into town, it's recorded that they were chanting hymns, that they were, uh, that they were singing songs of praise, that they were giving thanksgiving with the sound of harp and that they were waving palm branches. This was a hero's welcome home. Palm branches were so significant to Israel, such a national symbol, that when they temporarily defeated the Romans in 60 AD, they minted their own coins. And on that coin, they had palm branches to symbolize their victory. And then when Rome reconquered them, they printed coins that had Romans uh, demolishing palms. And so these palm branches were very significant. They symbolized the coming of a king. And as they waved these, they cried out, Hosanna, which simply means, come, oh, save, Lord, save now. It's a word that's only used in the New Testament on Palm Sunday, but it's used throughout the Old Testament to talk about how God himself had saved the people, a cry out to God to save them. And so we see Jesus was anticipated not only intellectually through the prophecies, but even in their hearts as they come and they cry out and they wave and say, King, come and save. So Jesus is the anticipated king. But Jesus also is the unanticipated king. He was anticipated in terms of prophecy. He was anticipated in terms of people's longings. But Jesus was unanticipated in two ways. He was unanticipated in his mission, and he was unanticipated in his method of accomplishing that method. So let's look at those. First, he was unanticipated. He had an unanticipated mission. As we look at Palm Sunday, the first Palm Sunday, and as you look throughout the Gospels, you see people are hoping for salvation. But the salvation that they're primarily looking for is a political salvation, a salvation from the Romans who are governing them and who have dominated them. And so they're crying out for Jesus to save them from the Roman oppression. If you remember back in John 6, they, they wanted by force, after Jesus turned five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000, they tried to force Jesus to be king, and he escaped. And so on Palm Sunday, it seems like Jesus is finally accepting this kingship, this political messiahship to kick out the Romans. But what we see is that he has a different mission than that. He has an unanticipated mission, a greater mission than that. 
And it's hinted here, even in this passage. Did you see why? And I think I saw this really for the first time ever. Did you see the, 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 the reason why they did this? Why people streamed out of Jerusalem to welcome Jesus in? Did you see the reason why here? Look with me, verse 9. It actually says it twice. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, which is Bethany, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So Lazarus was not only a witness, Lazarus was evidence of Christ's power. And the Jews wanted to destroy the evidence of Jesus' kingship. It goes on, verse 17. Let's get down to 17. It says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And then here it is, verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they had heard he had done this sign, raising Lazarus from the dead. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The triumphal entry was because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And we see that is the very heart of Jesus' mission. You know, we get this confused sometimes. We think Jesus' mission was maybe to make our kids behave well. Or Jesus' mission was to give us some sort of freedom in this life from political oppression. Or, or, or Jesus' goal in life was to come and make our politician be elected. And if we don't get our way, we do what this crowd does, which we turn on Jesus. We get, we get grouchy. We get grumpy. We say, I don't deserve this, right? Why didn't I get my way? We become moody. It's because we have mistaken Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission was not to make your life easy. Jesus' was not, mission was not to make you rich. Jesus' mission was not to make you happy. Jesus' mission was to make the dead come alive. And when we become grumpy, when we become grouchy, we have forgot his mission. We have forgot what he has come to accomplish. We have traded greater things for lesser things, and we complain when we don't get them. Jesus' mission was simply this, to make dead people come alive. It's actually listed throughout the Gospel of John. I went through and counted them. There's at least 30 times where it expresses that Jesus' mission is to bring dead people alive. I have a couple of verses here that I just want to pull out to point this out to you. You can follow along on the screen. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That wasn't his mission. But in order that the world might be saved through him, to bring them to life. John 10.10 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. This is Jesus speaking. I came. Why? That they may have life. And not just life, that they might have it abundantly. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. John eleven twenty five. 25. Jesus said to her, I am 
the resurrection, and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then we have the mission statement for the whole gospel of John, which is repeated through and through every week. John 20, 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So here's the question. One, do you have life in Jesus? If you don't have, if you've never accepted Jesus, you do not have life. You are breathing. Scripture says you are spiritually dead. But you can have life in Jesus, and we'll get to that. But if you're here and you have trust in Christ, if you say, I'm a Christian, you possess this life. It is, it is not maybe you have it sometimes and sometimes you don't. You have it. It is yours. You have been moved from death to life, and there is no going backwards. And God has given you life that you might have life abundantly. Do you live as a person that possesses this abundant life? Or do you walk around moping, complaining, arguing as one who is dead? I mean, imagine Lazarus, all right? So Lazarus was physically dead, brought back to life. Imagine he's raised from the dead. He comes out, they feed him, and he's like, oh, man, this soup doesn't have enough salt. Ah, oh, come on, honey, can't you make it better than that? It'd be ridiculous. Why? Because he was dead and he was made alive. Philippians tell us, do not complain about anything. Why? Because we were once dead and we have been made alive. I struggle with this. I struggle with being bitter, angry, complaining. And the reason why is because I forgot what I've been saved from and what I've been saved to. I've been saved from death and I've been transferred into life, abundant life. Praise God. And so we see that we are made alive in Christ. That is his mission. I have more there, but we need to keep going. So he had an unanticipated mission, which was not to give political life, but to give eternal life, abundant life, joyous life, glorious life in God. He also had an unanticipated method of accomplishing this mission of giving us life. Verse 14 Again, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Typically, when a king would come back from his victory, he would come in on his war horse, a symbol of power. But here comes Jesus <laughs> on a donkey. On a donkey. And the donkeys were small. Jesus probably had to lift up his feet just so they wouldn't drag on the ground. Here comes your king on a tricycle, right? Not a tank, a donkey. Why? Why was it that God had declared before human history that Jesus would come in on a donkey? Why not a war horse? He's a king. Because the donkey was to show us how this king would gain victory. This king would gain victory not through warfare, 
but through absolute and complete humiliation. Something that only God could think of. Jesus' victory would come in the most unanticipated way anyone could ever think of by being absolutely humbled. We read about this in Philippians 2, verse 6. It says, Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. How did he make himself nothing? Taking form of a servant, be, being born in the likeness of men. That's how he made himself nothing, being one of us. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. There's the humility of Jesus Christ. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most humiliating form of execution. The Westminster Larger Catechism puts this very well. Question 49 asks, how did Christ humble himself in his death? How did he humble himself in his death? And here's the answer. Christ humbled himself in his death and that having been betrayed by Judas, forsaken by his disciples, scorned and rejected by the world. Remember, this is God himself becoming man, the king of the universe. Condemned by Pilate, tormented by his persecutors, having also conflicted with the terrors of death and the powers of darkness, felt and borne the weight of God's wrath. He laid down his life, an offering for sin, enduring the painful, shameful, and cursed death of the cross. Why did Jesus do this? Why would a king, not only of a city or of a state or of a nation, but the king of the universe, why would he come to be humiliated? I mean, this was his choosing. This is what he wanted to do. This is the, the father's choosing. He didn't come to be exalted on this earth. He came to be humiliated. Why did he go to the cross, hang there naked for everyone to see, to scorn, to spit at, to joke at, to jest at? Why did he come to be humiliated? Why did he leave the throne room of heaven to be humiliated on the cross? And the reason is because he loves you. The reason is because he loves me. He took our humiliation upon the cross. Could you imagine if your sin was laid bare for everyone in here to see? Could you imagine how embarrassing that would be? And yet Jesus took our embarrassment, our humility, our our humiliation onto him at the cross. And he paid for it in full that we could be exalted with him. This humiliation of Christ is something that should humble you. We have nothing to boast about except Christ, who humbled himself on our behalf. Has this sacrifice of the King of Kings humbled you? Daily, do you go to him? Do you repent? Do you say, forgive me of my sins, O great King. Thank you for humbling yourself and dying on the cross for me. This creates a humility that is unseen by the world. It makes us a peculiar people because we know that we have been loved, not by our goodness, but even despite our sinfulness. Philippians 2 continues. It says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. And then we see what happens as a result of this. Verse 9, Therefore God was highly exalted, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this leads us to our final point, that Jesus is the final king, that he is the victorious king, that he is the triumphal king. I'm going to move through this really quickly, but on that first Palm Sunday, Jesus came in on a donkey. But Jesus is going to come again, and he will not be riding a donkey. Read with me, Revelations 19. Verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, that is Jesus, who is sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophets who in it presents presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. There's a lot of language in there that's confusing, I know. But you get the picture. Jesus came in humility, bringing peace on a donkey. But he will come again, to bring war on a horse, to make all things new, to redeem the world, to bring it back to himself. And so you have two options. You can come to the donkey or you can fear the horse. You can come to the savior, the king who rides in on a donkey, who humiliated himself, trusting in him for your salvation. Or one day the horse will come and it will be absolute terror as Jesus makes all things Right, and he enacts his justice for every one of us. Let me conclude. So we see Jesus' anticipated king through prophecy, through palms, their heart anticipation. Jesus is the unanticipated king. He had an unanticipated mission of making dead people alive, something much better than political salvation. He had an unanticipated method of absolute humiliation through a donkey and going to the cross. And we see Jesus is the final king, the ultimate king, the victorious king. You know, I love songs because songs, for better or worse, you know, some songs are, are good lyrically, sometimes they're very bad. But they reveal the longings of people's hearts, don't they? I mean, music is, is powerful. It reveals what's going on in their hearts. And so I have some song lyrics for you today. And believe it or not, it's not a country song for once, Okay. And it's not even a Christian song, although when we read through it, we're like, boy, this could possibly be changed into a worship song. It's from the 80s, which I know many of you like. It's even from a popular movie, so I'll let you kind of guess what it is as I read it. But I want you to pay close attention to the longing of this person. What do you think is going on in their heart and soul as the person who wrote this wrote this? And I think it really communicates what all of us long for, a God-given longing. Here it is. You can follow along on the screen. Where have all good men gone? And where are all the gods? Where's the streetwise Hercules 
to fight the rising odds. Isn't there a white knight upon a fiery steed? Late at night, I toss and turn and dream of what I need. Does anyone know the song? Okay, we do have some. Somewhere after midnight, in my wildest fantasy, somewhere just beyond my reach, there's someone reaching back for me. Of where the mountains meet the heavens, above, out where the lightning splits the sea, I would swear that there's someone somewhere watching me through the wind and the chill and the rain and the storm and the flood. I can feel his approach like a fire in my blood. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the end of the night. He's got to be strong and he's got to be fast and he's got to be fresh from the fight. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero to the end of the night. He's got to be sure, and it's got to be soon. And he's got to be larger than life. All of us, without exception, long for a hero. All of us, without exception, long for a king to make things right. To come back and set things, to redeem things to the way they're supposed to be. And this person that we're looking for, he's got to be sure It's got to be soon, and he's got to be larger than life. Our earthly heroes and kings, they're good. They're put there by God, but ultimately, they fail us. And we're left singing this song time and time again, once again trying to elect a political official that will make everything right, which is beyond their capability When Jesus came on the donkey, he was hailed as a humble king and he will return as victorious king so that there will be no more sadness, tears, injustice, or pain. Palm Sunday means this. The wait is over. Your king has come. He may not be the king you anticipated, but he is the king your heart longs for. Let's pray. King Jesus, thank you for coming to bring your righteousness, to bring your dominion, to bring your redemption in part. Thank you that one day you will come again to bring it in full. God, I pray this week, this Passion Week, that we would connect with you in deep and intimate ways, Lord as we track this week of your life and see the pain and agony and passion that you have, that we would enjoy you as our king, that we would appreciate you, that we would be humbled by your kingship, that we would surrender more of our lives to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.